Everything's going to be all right. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. It's Friday, November 11th, 2016. This week is episode 437. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. I am in the studio, Studio D, that is, in Central City, Pennsylvania. At the controls is our engineer, John. you got to have faith. And joining me back from Studio C in McKee's Rocks is my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Good afternoon, Joe. Hi, John. We got you. Hello, everybody. Good to have you back there, Cliff. And this week, we welcome Linda Wigington of uh, Linda Wigington and Associates. We're going to talk a little bit about the nexus of energy and indoor air quality and the Reducing Outdoor Contaminants in Indoor Spaces uh, program that she's been working on here most recently. Before we do, we've got to stop and thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Either email us to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer with your computer. Congratulations! To Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental in Dayton, Ohio, for that lightning-fast answer to last week's IQ Radio Trivia question. The IQ Radio Trivia question for Friday, November 11, 2016, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. It's Veterans Day today, and we extend our thank you the past, current, and future members of our military service. Now for today's IQ Radio trivia question. Which of the 50 American states consumes the most power per household? Back to you, Joe. Okay, we've got Linda Wigington, and through her company, Linda Wigington Associates, they are involved in initiatives to evaluate and redefine the process, scope, and value of residential energy reductions. She is currently demonstrating the feasibility of achieving deep reductions in existing dwellings throughout North America on the Thousand Home Challenge. Some listeners may know her better as being the founder and being associated with the Affordable Comfort Conference from its inception in 1986. Uh, She's also been involved in numerous other programs over the years, and most recently, She's been working with the uh, the Roxas program, which is the, um, oh, and I lost the name of that one, but anyway, uh, reducing outdoor contaminants in indoor air since its inception in June of 2014 and the low-cost monitoring project, which began in 2015. In the past, she's also been an advisor for the Habitat for Humanity International Green Team and in current currently is on the editorial board of Home Energy Magazine. She also received the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy's 2002 Champion of Energy Efficiency Award. We've got a little music for Linda. Every home needs light to keep us working and playing. 
every day and night But you can turn down the heat Yeah, you can turn off that light And when it comes to tomorrow It'll be alright That's great. <laughs> Welcome, Linda. Great to have you. Good to be here. All right, I was muted there for a moment, but I am back. Hey, let's let's talk a little bit about first how you got involved in in energy efficiency and building science. What uh, what led to your interest in those areas? Well, as a as a teenager, I was a little bit of a rabble rouser. I was, I guess, an environmentalist, and uh, and actually, it was my mom that continually said it's more important to be for something than to be against things. Make sure you're for something. And uh, and then through college, I was involved in some environmental issues, and it became real clear that just being opposed to um, stuff wasn't wasn't effective. That, um, I mean, in that case, it was nuclear power. Was, there was projected to be a 1,000 nuclear power plants in the next, built in the next 20 years or whatever. And... And it didn't matter whether or not they were safe or whether or not it was the direction to go. Everything seemed to come back to, yeah, but we need the power. So it really occurred to me that the real root of so many of our environmental problems are energy efficiency, are our assumptions regarding how much energy we need and how many how much we need in terms of resources. So I thought it really made sense to commit my life to the root of the problem, which is an exploration of what we need to live well, what we what, how can we truly function as a, um, uh, just as with incredible health and, and wealth, um, but with a minimal impact on the environment? Hmm. You know, I'm curious then, once you made that decision, how did you figure out where to go to get this information you were trying to gather? I mean, energy efficiency, I don't know if it was always thought of as, um, use less as opposed to find better ways to generate it what what got what how did you get started well i um uh mostly from the standpoint of thinking about my own life and impact um so that's like all of us we live we live in places we live in homes so it was a matter of exploring my own um my own home and my own actions and how I, uh, what impact I had. And um, I, I was able to get into a graduate program at WVU that, that was a um, program for the study of technology. And uh, there was a real interest in appropriate technology at that point. And we actually did some, um, got some programs funded to do energy education for homeowners and had a demonstration house that was funded to demonstrate energy efficiency and, and alternatives. So the focus of my graduate work was residential energy efficiency and alternatives and community energy education. So um, I zeroed in on that, took some engineering courses, but I was m m you know, not just interested in the technical stuff. I do think that the, the issue of the intersection of, of what's thought of as energy conservation or choosing to use less versus using what you do use more efficiently is where there's the greatest impact, and it's not just a matter of of uh, efficiency alone. Uh, I think they go they really go hand in hand, and in may, way too many cases we don't really explore what our options are. And um, as long as we don't explore what our options are, we tend to come up with the assumption that we just need to continue to use more energy, regardless of the environmental impact. And hmm. I think that's very false. Huge false assumption, a myth that uh, that uh, is the cause of an awful lot of the problems we're facing right now. Well, let's you know, you not only talk the talk, but as I understand it, you 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 walk the walk, and um, that you know you do some things in your own home. What what have you done after exploring this in your own home to help reduce your your carbon footprint? Well, I. Um, I have a house that was built in the 40s, and when I bought it, I insulated it well, air-sealed, um, put in a mechanical ventilation system, um, you know, did the, the things that made, you know, added more attic insulation, you know, did things that immediately made sense. Since then, I've 
uh, switched over and added two ductless heat pumps, a heat pump water heater, changed all the lighting to LEDs, a monitor, my base load, my electric use, um, added uh, movable window insulation, what's called window quilts, and also just manually inserted. Because I kept, I kept most, I have all but one of my original 1940s double-hung single-pane windows. But basically, I've gotten to the point where I added a small PV array, photovoltaics, for generating electricity. It was generated about um, 2,100 kilowatt hours, and I was able to be net zero. Um, so that was that was that was cutting it really close. So I, you know, I I mean, it was like putting a dehumidifier on a one-hour timer, which didn't quite keep my basement as dry as it should be. So. So I added more PV, and I'm I'm pretty much within the net zero energy with with about 4,000 kilowatt hours in total, you know, all electric home. <laughs> so to only be using four, you know, three to four thousand kilowatt hours is pretty low energy use, um, and probably the biggest share of my energy use is for dehumidifiers, air cleaners, and monitors. That probably is more than my ductless heat pump energy use. But part of what I do is definitely lifestyle. I I learned that um, um, sort of by accident that uh, I could be comfortable at a lower temperature setting, so I've been experimenting. And uh, since then, my temperature setting has gone up a little bit over what it had a few years ago. Uh, but uh, but I, I was just curious to find out, well, what, what does it mean to be comfortable and how much energy can you save by choosing to achieve comfort in a different way. Uh, so I call that creative comfort. So I you know, had my thermostat setting during some period of time, around 55 um, hmm. to 60. Since then, it's crept up more to 60 to 65, um, but I'm perfectly comfortable at that temperature setting, and that's partly why I can have the energy use I have. Interesting. Cliff, let me turn it over to you for a minute. Hey, Linda, thank you for joining us. I've, I've got a question. Do you live alone? Yep, and that's that's a major factor. Um, when you live with somebody else, there's a dynamic that can really limit your options. <laughs> <laughs> and certainly getting along with who you're living with can be far more important than than one's uh, curiosity in exploring boundaries of thermal comfort. So, the, the, great question. Yeah, the reason I do not cook as much as most people do. So. The reason I ask is my wife and I have been married, uh, you know, we're going on 35 years or whatever, and she likes it really cold. And uh, I, I mean, like, colder than, than normal. And uh, it, it's tough on me, but uh, that, that was why I asked the question. <laughs> so, All right, they well, call that dueling thermostats, and it's one way where, hey, creating a comfort zone in a house so that one person can be comfortable at their own thermostat setting and someone else can be comfortable at a different thermostat setting makes a lot of sense. Right. Let me ask this. I mean, I, I believe, you know, that uh, in your in your bio, you talks about your experience with the Passive House um, program over, I guess, in Europe, and now we've, it's starting to grow here in the United States, and I know you've been involved with the, the U.S. group as well, but um, I guess most importantly, how did your experience with Passive House shape your views today on, on, on what can be achieved? Great question. Um, and uh, sort of leads back to the, with my experience with the Affordable Comfort Conference, which is, I was basically program coordinator for, basically developed the agenda for our conferences for, from 1986 to well, 2010 or so. Um, we're, is very much in the position of understanding what's possible and practical in terms of energy efficiency in existing homes. And my, I was well aware that most, most evaluations show that, you know, programs don't save as much energy as we predict. And a really good program, exceptional program, might save 25 to 30%, uh, like natural gas. If you have uninsulated homes and you insulate them well and replace some furnaces and yeah, but that's a really good savings. So the notion that you could easily save 50 to 70, 80% savings is just considered, you know, um, not not valid uh, across a group of homes. You know, it's truly an exception. Well, a friend of mine was involved in, uh, was in Europe for a while and had gone, attended some passive house stuff. And um, 
Passive House is basically an initiative. They they give credit to very, very good work that was done in the U.S. and Canada um, that actually caused them to to explore what could be done in terms of super insulation. And it's not passive passive solar. It's passive house basically means you make a house incredibly energy efficient from a standpoint of ins- insulation and air tightness. And, um, and then you've got a lot more flexibility in how you actually heat it. You don't need a, con- you don't typically need a conventional heating system. So in talking to a friend, I just always considered that, you know, sort of out there, not practical, not reasonable, but I'm well aware of everything that's going on in terms of climate change and the need to drastically reduce our energy use and realizing that what everything that I was doing within affordable comfort and advocating only gets you, you know, 20, 30% of the way. It's like, how do we truly change existing housing stocks so that we anywhere approach carbon neutrality is like a, there's this huge gap. And what I found out was Passive House was actually demonstrating that it was possible to drastically change the way buildings perform. And uh, it was really intriguing to find that out. So it, it, it's, um, I think, I mean, part of what I didn't say about my lifestyle uh, is that I, I just constantly want to sort of learn from what I'm doing and also find out for sure whether or not something works. Um, you know, sort of prove it to myself. And and to me, it was a major change of perspective to realize that that the things that I thought were not possible were not only possible but achievable. Um, and in talking to my friend John Krieger, he was talking about how, in, particularly in masonry buildings, a lot of apartments, a lot of big buildings in Germany and Austria, that they were developing systems to insulate, to insulate on the outside, and systems to make it much easier to do so. So these chunks of insulation were like blocks that would fit together and corner joint, you know, corner pieces, and so it was like tinker toys kind of all coming together as a system. Hmm. So it was they were actually moving from something being at the experimental stage to making it so that no, you can actually do this routinely. And obviously, if you've got uninsulated masonry buildings in a cold climate, you can have a huge impact on the performance of a building. So, so, and and they also called for extreme levels of air tightness that I thought were not at all possible. And what's what's been interesting to see is that yes, indeed, I don't know how much how many of much of your listening audience is used to doing blower door tests, but certainly within the building performance, um, home performance folks. CFM50 is the measure of air tightness in a typical house, and it's um, the number of um, uh, cubic feet per minute at 50 pascals, which is what you measure with a blower door. And typically, within existing homes and average homes, you figure if you're getting it below one CFM50 per per square foot, you're getting pretty good. Above that's not as good. I mean, that's a really rough rule of thumb. Mm-hmm. The passive house was calling for something that was ten times tighter than that. Hmm. So I remember the first night that I actually got the got the data on what it took to meet the meet the passive house standard, and I plugged in my home's data, and I thought, wow. I mean, my house is pretty tight. It's you know like nine hundred fifty CFM fifty, and I would have had to get it down to one hundred ten. and and i'd done the air sealing on my house and you know i knew what my energy use was you know at that point i was pretty low it was only like a hundred and um a couple hundred gallons of oil but to meet to meet the energy performance it would have to been more like you know 80 gallons of oil it was like holy cow how would i achieve that in my own home so it just made me it made me realize that hold you know what what would it take to do that well to and um, so what was most interesting was then going down the path of exploring and seeing uh, who who and what we were learning from different passive house projects. And definitely it's a whole lot easier to achieve those levels of air tightness in new construction or absolutely major rehab. Like a, And I think passive house has actually taken off fairly well in the U.S. That's probably the most promising market is major rehab of masonry, apartment buildings and it's you know a huge opportunity there um, particularly in cold climates you know they for the most part are uninsulated 
And the key thing about passive house is it's very holistic. So it's really looking at you got to really insulate it well and make it airtight so you don't have moisture going into places where moisture is not supposed to go. Um, but then you're also um, making sure you've got mechanical ventilation that's distributed, and that's an essential part of it. So it's got a very holistic sense of uh, collection of principles to guide a, a project. Um, but it's not based on what you actually achieve in a building. It's based on a predicted um, predicted performance of a building. So, so, yeah, I mean, it's an awful long answer to your question, Joe, but the, the key thing was it made me aware that it was possible to go far deeper than we thought um, in terms of energy efficiency, but it also gave me a framework of, well, how else could we get that same level of performance? And in my case, my house achieves um, does not meet passive house standard. It would need far more insulation and have to be far tighter. However, my energy use would be equal to the same as a house that meets the passive house standard because I've chosen to live differently. And to me, that's, that's the incredible gift is the idea of just reexamining how we live in order to think about the fact that it's quite possible to drastically reduce our energy use and live well, and also have very high, good air quality, and good control of humidity, and um, and do all those things, um, but do it at a fraction of the environmental impact uh, that most homes have. I, I think that's a good, but I think that's a good foundation on which to to build for the rest of the show. I mean, and and but before I I, I jump over to the next question, I'm I'm curious. Do you know? How much uh, passive house has caught on in, in like Germany and Europe? Is it one percent, five percent of new construction? Um, do you have any idea where that where they are with that? No, I haven't followed it closely recently. I was involved early on, you know, like uh, quite a while ago, ten years ago. Um, what I do know is there's some communities and cities that were calling for it to be the standard for new construction or major retrofit. And one thing that's interesting is actually net zero energy has caught on. And in some cases with bigger buildings, bigger if you're net zero energy, you might actually go beyond passive house. So even though passive house is sort of seen as the extreme level of energy efficiency, it's actually, um, because it's based on energy use per square foot, it actually is not as... Not as um, uh, highest standard as might be justifiable if you're truly trying to achieve uh, net zero energy um, buildings or communities. Hmm. And and I'm curious, how, what about the you know the biggest kind of objection I hear is, is the cost of of the insulation and the tightness and the blower door testing and all that. I I have a little contracting company here. I can imagine me trying to tell some of the locals up here in Somerset you know, get them to do this. How do we get, how do we get people beyond that? Uh, first of all, I guess, is it that big of an expense? And secondly, even if it is, what's the payoff? <laughs> now that's a really good question. I think it can be incredibly expensive if you're just learning, if you're on the learning curve or if your systems don't work um, or if you don't have, if you don't have folks that are committed to the process and you're trying to you know, push people to do something they they don't believe is practical. But there have been cases. There have been some neat um, developers and contractors, some of um, single-family housing stock, um, some folks in the north Northwest. There's a guy in Massachusetts that, you know, I'm not sure in the, one, the Massachusetts guy, I don't think his homes are necessarily passive house, but they're net zero energy without a huge photovoltaic array. And they basically are... are building these homes at at basically market rates because they've got really good systems. They've really looked at the optimization of everything within the house. So they're really looking at trade-offs and, um, and, and how to make the system work. So they're not just trying to add on to the way that they used to do it. They're rethinking how you do stuff. So to make a house really, really tight, for example, new construction, you basically make the frame airtight um, 
and then you'd put interior partitions and stuff. You wouldn't go in and do all your interior framing and partitions and then try to air seal from the inside. You might have an entire skin on the outside that would, would totally enclose the building, and you minimize the operable holes. I mean, and you, you really rethink how many windows you have. You make sure the windows you have are strategic and are going to do the right job. So the idea of, of um, you know, not compromising good lighting, not compromising ventilation, but not just putting windows in for the sake of windows, you think about, okay, does this window need to operate? Um, so you could end up with less glazing area but better lighting, um, less glare, greater comfort, but but save on windows and yet spend more to get the high performance, you know, the the uh, the windows that have an R value of 7, 8, whatever, rather than an R value of 3. So there, there are neat trade-offs that you can do uh, when you really think through the system. Now, I do think one of the real good criticisms of super insulation is how long does it take to pay back for the energy invested in the materials you're using. Mm-hmm. And that's something that the Passive House folks have really tended to say, you know, don't use all this foam. Use materials that are less energy intensive. And um, because of that issue, you know, if, you're, if it's going to take you 40 years to pay back the energy investment of foam, that doesn't make sense. But definitely I think there are good systems using appropriate materials where building new in either, either single-family, multifamily, um, fourplex, commercial buildings, where you could go in and achieve a high level of performance that's substantially better than what we've got now and verified performance, not necessarily passive house, but, but it, takes, it takes time to develop the systems to, and tweak and to get everything right and to assume that you're going to get it right the first time to assume that you're not going to have a learning curve um, would be a big mistake. So the role of feedback and verification is absolutely critical. And we've, interestingly, we've seen um, houses that are, you know, built to meet the passive house standard but don't, don't meet the energy performance expected because they weren't anticipating how much higher the hot water use would be or how much higher the electric use would be for radon mitigation or dehumidification or all the plug loads we have, all the phantom loads we've got. Yeah, so there's, you know, there's, um, there's a lot to be verified and learned from. Uh, I think what we need is a, a path of continual improvement and learning, and every project should be seen as an opportunity to, to learn, to tweak, and make a system even better. But definitely the cost issue, which you hear in some cases, if you're not taking consideration just the cost of designing the house but building, you know, maybe a 5 to 10% improvement or increase over the cost of conventional. Mm-hmm. But, um, but not, you know, we're not talking about 300%. We're talking about small increases, and depending on the systems used, I think it can be very, very reasonable and justifiable. Okay. And uh, before we break for halftime, I want to get started on the, the the main topic for the second half, and that is the uh, RACUS program here, the Reducing Outdoor Contaminants in Indoor... Uh, I forgot the S, but... Um, spaces. Spaces, thank you. Spaces. All right. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that... You know, how did that get started, the RACUS? And, and that is, am I pronouncing that right? RACUS, R-O-C-I-S. Yes, RACUS. We're not RUSUS. We're RACUS. <laughs> so uh, RACUS is an initiative. It was the, um, it's funded by the Heinz Endowments in Pittsburgh. And um, it's not an, an organization. It's an initiative. I'm the leader, cat herder, whatever. Um so it consists of having several folks working under contract, and primarily our, our, the mission is to uh, reduce the impact of exterior environmental pollution in southwestern Pennsylvania in order to improve healthy and energy-efficient indoor environments. Um, and that's where we live, work, and learn, so basically buildings. Um, and the main way of doing that was to work with, establish, and support uh, a a stakeholder group, and to constantly broaden and deepen that stakeholder group of folks who are involved and have in any way in their, primarily as professionals, but in some cases as advocates, you know, folks that are involved in um, sustainable housing, affordable housing, healthy housing, um, 
uh, all the health-related air quality stuff like asthma um, monitoring. Um, I know I'm leaving folks out, but um, but basically home performance. You know the whole array of of professionals who have some some touch in the in that area to bring folks together to learn from each other and to also challenge to redefine how we think about healthy homes and um, and buildings. So the Rockus Initiative initially began developing a couple white papers, having meetings, bringing folks together, and really tr- really exploring the issue of the impact of outdoor contaminants because. Because for the most part, the common perception across um, across the, the folks that I'm describing, the organizations and individuals, whether they be you know nonprofits or private sector businesses or academic or um, uh, consultants, the common perception within building industry is that if you want a healthy house, you need to take care of the sources of uh, contaminants from materials and from occupants in the house and you've got to have good ventilation and you've got to bring in outside air um, to dilute this stuff that's inside. And you, you basically, that's the key. I mean, that's overly simplistic, as you know, but, but the whole idea of Rockus was to raise the question of, yeah, but what if, the, what if you've got stuff that's outside? What if the water coming in when you heat it generates pollutants when you take a shower? What if the outside air you're bringing in is really dirty. What if you've got soil gases, including radon? So that's been our focus: is is that how do we how do we change the paradigm of the folks who are working all on in this larger area and support organizations in developing initiatives um, in order to address and minimize the impact um, impacts we find in southwestern Pennsylvania, which there's lots of opportunity for improvement because we do have um, uh, some of the worst air quality um, in the U.S. According to the recent um, State of the Air report by the American Lung Association, Pittsburgh is either the 10th or 11th in the in the annual and in the 24-hour um, particle um, uh, particulate matter, 2.5. Um, so 10th out of all the communities in the United States that are tested, and most of the ones that are worse are in Southern California. Hmm. So you know, we've got lots of opportunity. We've been doing getting better. We used to be worse, but we're still. Um, so the impact of the environment is huge here. I can imagine what it was 40 years ago when I was growing up in the area. I mean, or even 50 when all the steel mills were cooking, and oh my goodness. <laughs> We had to be in the top five then, you know. But uh, let me, uh, let's do this, Linda. We're going to stop, thank our sponsors. We'll be back in 90 seconds, folks. We'll be back for the second half with Linda Wigington. We're going to talk a little more about the Rockus program, and then we're going to get into a little bit on the the low-cost monitoring component of that because I think there's some very interesting information in there. So we'll be right back with Linda Wigington. And thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. The Restoration and Specialty Cleaners Association who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is trsca.org. Thanks to our advertisers. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Visit them at legends-enviro.com. And Particles Plus, they are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com, count on us. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. 
John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, we're back for the second half of our interview with Linda Wigington. We, we ended talking about the reducing outdoor, outdoor contaminants in indoor spaces um, initiative, and now we're going to focus a little more on the, the low-cost monitoring project portion of RACUS. Uh, Linda, can you tell listeners a little bit about what that, how that started out and uh, what the goal is? Sure. Um the low-cost monitoring project came about because we had a lot of interest among our net, our network of stakeholders in in adapting and incorporating monitoring low-cost monitors into different programs and initiatives they were doing, and yet the um, the products were just beginning to come on the market. No one really had experience, and it seemed like we could really support our broader network by establishing. Um, some experience with that and giving giving folks the opportunity to use them. So we basically uh, wanted to understand how they could be used in order to empower occupants. You know, do they empower or do they overwhelm? Um, we wanted to understand what, what the challenges were just in using monitoring equipment. How user-friendly is it? Um, what kind of information does it provide? What's the issues regarding reliability, durability? Um, we wanted to collect baseline data. We really didn't have baseline data on what to expect, like what's, what are normal numbers that you'd get doing different um, things, particularly with a focus on particles. Um, and, you know, what, so what's, the, what's typical and then what's the variation, what's possible? And then we also wanted to explore the impact of behavioral and technical interventions. So those were the three primary objectives. And what we decided to do was buy a bunch of equipment, create some kits, and basically use a cohort model where we invited stakeholders, initially stakeholders, and then stakeholders, neighbors, and and other folks who expressed interest, anyone who heard about it, um, to participate in a, a three-week cohort. So basically people come to a meeting, they get a, a bag of, um, of, of uh, monitors, and they... Um, go home and use them and or go to the workplace and use them and then we we have three meetings over the course of the three weeks and we collect data but we're also really interested not just in the data but really interested in the people's experience and supporting their their them learning from that experience what what if what have been some of the key takeaways the the big you know the big aha moments for you in this um, when, when people come back and report what what kind of things are they telling you um, well I've, our primary focus has been on particles so that's why we use um, half the equipment we provide um, we provide two specs and three dialos um, but we we did want to make sure that in looking at particles and air pollution and looking at the impact of outdoor versus indoor, we also were understanding indoor sources. So we also included a a low-level CO monitor and um, CO2 monitor as well as two radon monitors. And I, the first thing that came up really quickly was, wow, there's a bunch of radon out there. And uh, in Allegheny County, you know, the, the statistics said that, you know, 40% of the homes are over 4.1, whatever the ETA standard and um, that's what we found in the first cohorts. Um, and yet we had a group, because we were relying on our stakeholder network, these were folks that were typically involved in energy efficiency, energy advocacy, sustainability, healthy homes. These are folks that were already pretty knowledgeable. So uh, certainly 20 30% of the folks involved already had radon mitigation systems. But even so, we found 40% um, homes that were high, some were very high, um, 
So that was that was the surprise. In fact, we started off with just one radon monitor, which we put in basements, and uh, and we uh, we doubled that quickly so that people would see that the radon in their living space was usually, at least during the winter, was not quite as bad usually as that in the basement. It varied, but um, uh, so so the radon levels were interesting, and we definitely have seen that the radon levels have been higher in the newer homes. A um, hmm. couple, couple of our folks have, have, have homes that had a passive system, but they hadn't followed up to check. And when they checked, they found elevated radon, so they converted their passive system to an active system. But some of those homes were, were in the higher levels, like you know, over 15, um, which, oh, whereas you know, other, there were other houses that, you know, I mean, we had a, a interesting range. So that was one one thing that we weren't expecting. In terms of the particle and the sources, that's there's um it's a hard question just to answer in general. Why don't I suggest we back up to just say Yeah, let's let's back up on two things. First you you talked about the radon a little and before we go too far um, I know you and I discussed that we, we want to make sure listeners are, are aware that, you know, you're giving us some generalizations. These aren't necessarily, um, you know, uh, hard data at this point. Is that accurate to say? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it, it, I guess hard data, I mean, it would be data. I mean, we're taking measurements, but in terms of extrapolating from that data or analyzing that data, um, uh, this is not meant to be a... Um, a research project, um, a peer-reviewed re- scientific research project, it's much more meant to be an exploration because if we strictly wanted um, unbiased uh, data on houses and comparing indoor and outdoor levels, we wouldn't be using meters that give people feedback and encourage them to learn and play. <laughs> because right, right, because right. obviously as people do things differently, they're affecting their reading. So... So we we um, we we've got this interesting balance between the the exploration and experience side and the data side. But we've got a lot of data. We got over seven, ten, whatever million data points of Dylas data to date. A lot of data. Let's talk a little bit about that. So you, you've got the spec and the dialos. I am not as familiar. I've got. I'm looking at a spec right now on my desk, and we we did a show with the folks from CMU on the spec, and that one focuses pr- on the 2.5 micrometer particle range and, and above. I'm, I'm if I recall correctly, the dialos, as you were telling me before the show, though that has two sensors, one at 2.5 and above and one one below or is that maybe you could expand on that a little bit yeah the dialos um actually there's different dialos models they've been around for quite a while um and and some of them measure 2.5 and 10 and uh, in that range and and the one we're using the dialos 1700 measures 0.5 and above on the smaller scale, and then 2.5 and above on the what they call the larger scale. To get the true reading, you're supposed to you know separate, um, supposed to subtract the larger from the smaller. We find that the, our ratios are very constant between small and large, based on our uh, the pollution we're looking at. We usually just use the raw numbers as a frame of reference in order to. Learn and all of these are looking at counts. They're not looking at um, you know anything that you can equate to um, directly to EPA um, criteria pollutants. And you know, uh, air air quality is based on a very well defined measurement of of uh, air pollution with um, equipment that has to meet certain standards and particles or PM particle particulate matter is all based on mass. Um, the weight with with uh, filters, so we're we're using a device that does not do the same thing, but provides very, I think, very interesting and possibly more useful results in some ways. So so we are looking at with the dialos a smaller count than than what typically would be viewed uh, with most of the um, uh, low cost monitors that are out there, and the the spec did have a bunch of additional work done. And they were really trying to tighten and look more closely at what they were 
measuring. And I know Ila um, Norbosch had said that um, when they um, they did more testing, it was definitely within the two to four micron range was what the specs seemed to be capturing very effectively. And real quick for listeners too, um, the spec uh, is about two hundred dollars. The the Dylos, what's the what's the price range on that one? The the Dylos, if you look at Amazon, it's the Dylos seventeen hundred is is four ninety five. We we have been able to get them in bulk for for three hundred dollars. And I've got a text question too, and then this kind of fits in now, um, Linda. A number of libraries provide a kilowatt meters for members to use. Do you? maybe see libraries as a resource for checking out the raucous equipment? Um, well, actually, libraries in Pittsburgh have had been a source of spec equipment, um, and there are some initiatives that are looking at ways that equipment can be loaned out. And um, our, What we're trying to do is look at what what is a good delivery model for uh, sharing equipment and for people to learn and benefit from it. So that's certainly part of our our inquiry over the past year um, is understanding what the value of the equipment is and and basically I think I'm I'm probably I mean I think it, I think the monitoring equipment can be very useful but I think it also can be sort of mis misinterpreted so so I'm probably a little more cautious um, in saying that the highest value I think you get is with a Sort of the kind of model we have, where we're we're providing the equipment, but then we're also helping with the interpretation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and what what areas of um, activities in the home have people been noticing? You know, lead to that increase in particulate. Although I know you're looking at outside coming in more often than not, but I guess you're also getting information on activities that raise particle levels. Absolutely, and, and that's that's a clear takeaway is you just can't look at one. And obviously anyone that's thought much about homes knows that, well, the tighter you make the house, unless you take care of indoor sources, the more you concentrate what you've got. Um, so you might be better off in terms of excluding stuff coming in from outside, but you, meanwhile you've concentrated the inside stuff. So mm-hmm. you cannot win unless you address and you need to address um, both indoor and outdoor sources, and you need a, an approach that that does that effectively and understanding what the sources are and addressing them. Um, so what was your question? <laughs> well, what are the big sources um, that people weren't, you know... A big source. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, so what we constantly see is that, you know, cooking is always a big aha surprise. Um, and it, that shows up clearly on the spec and the dilos, uh, all, you know, the full range of particle counts. Um, and even when people have, have hoods and use the hoods, um, they often see um, significant spikes from that. Hmm. The other thing they, uh, I mean, there are a number of things that people see. One is just any activity. So when they're sleeping, they might, you know, wake up and the level's fairly low. And then as soon as you start to move around in the house, Degenerate. So oftentimes, just any activity in houses with more kids and more people, you know, as soon as the kids come home and they're romping around, you see higher levels. Now, and to a large extent, you see that across the full spectrum of the particle sizes we're looking at. Um, so, um, you know, the, some of that's just the embedded, embedded stuff, the stuff on the floor, even hard surfaces, you can kick off, kick up an amazing amount of of um of stuff just by walking on a hard surface, let alone a carpet or let alone upholstery. Um but then there there are other unique things like humidifiers, um and in one case a person was using air or using water that was not what do you call it? Um you're supposed to use oh, pure water. Like purified water. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. 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 And they didn't they didn't want to buy Water, distilled water, so they used distilled. tap water, and their counts were you know, 30,000 in a bedroom. And on a dilo scale, 3,000 is very poor. Most houses, I think, are median levels, you know, like 600 or 500. And as soon as they switched to distilled water, the level dropped way down. So it did not appear to be just a humidity factor. And that's, you know, we're talking about complicated stuff, and we're simplifying it greatly. 
There are humidity factors. Obviously, when you're looking at outdoor stuff coming indoors, you're changing temperature and relative humidity. You've got interactions and all kinds of stuff going on, and we're we're definitely simplifying all that. But humidifiers can be a huge one. Um, uh, sometimes just operating equipment, like uh, in any hot surface, like uh, using a toaster. Uh, in my case, I, I found that making coffee created really high spikes, and it was only because I hadn't really cleaned off the pad that gets super hot, uh-huh. you know, for, what, months. And when I just really, really cleaned it off, it was a whole lot better. Um, <laughs> so lots of those kinds of things. Vacuuming can really kick up a lot of dust. Um, so those are the things that people see. They see those spikes. And they and what what's interesting is that using a monitor just for a week or two could easily um, uh, let you know about the things that you're doing and could in some cases give you feedback of things that, oh, well, I can choose not to do this and I can really lower my peaks. The other thing people do see is that when it's really bad outside, it can get really bad inside. But that's sort of separate. But the the main the main concern I have is that lots of times when people see those peaks, you know, they sort of think, well, you know, what am I going to do? Get rid of my kids? Um, <laughs> my air quality is great as long as I'm not here. Well, you know, so so in some cases, I think just seeing the peaks doesn't always give you a doesn't always empower you, and that you don't see clear solutions. Um, and that's. Um, to really getting low, uh, the levels significantly lower. And well, let me let me, Cliff. I know you have a follow up first. Yeah, Linda. Um, what about pets? Um, have you got any interesting information that you didn't expect? Uh, you know, using the monitors with homes that have pets versus homes that don't. We have we do ask folks a bunch of questions and uh, pets. Candles, uh, fragrance, you know, um, things you do to put uh, scents in the air, all kinds of things like that. All are questions we ask. We haven't analyzed that data, but we definitely, I mean, the thing is pets vary a whole lot, but pets definitely can can be a, a source for the question of whether or not the pet is is equal to a kid, you know, a three-year-old kid, or whether or not the the pet is just because of all the stuff they shed. They often tend to shed fairly big stuff, but they they kick up. I mean, there's, so there's two two factors. One is their source of and their contribution, but then the other thing in terms of what they're putting off, but then the other thing is just their activity level. But definitely, um, and that's one of the things that portable air cleaners have been demonstrated. If people have pet allergies, the portable air cleaners definitely help reduce pet allergies. The reason I mentioned it is uh, uh, Joe and I were at the uh, Indoor Air Quality Association meeting, and I saw a presentation by Jeff May, and he was talking about dust mites, and I never really thought about my dog's bed being a source of dust mites, but uh, it was. And, you know, I, I think people just talk about, you know, humans and dust mites and being in bed with dust in our pillows and mattresses and all that other stuff, and you know, I think they just totally disregarded pets. So that's mm-hmm. yeah. I've got a, definitely. Yeah. I got a text question that kind of ties into one that I had anyway. And, and Dale, thanks for sending these. Um, it's with respect to carpet. Let's start with this. Did did you find a difference in carpeted homes versus non-carpeted? Have you looked that closely? No. Um, what's been more surprising, and we do ask that question, but what's more and and basically our data analysis has been primarily looking at um, the just the data we've gotten across the the seventy plus folks who we have both indoor and outdoor data for, and looking at the variation in that data, and particularly looking at the indoor versus outdoor, and the distribution of that data in terms of high to low, and median and um, some of the lag effects and correlations. Um, so we're really looking forward to the issue of digging deeper, but but you really need a, you know more homes for it to be more interesting to get into the the um, some of the the house characteristic kinds of issues. What's been more surprising to most people, I think, is that hard surfaces. Because you always hear, oh, you know, yeah, carpet's bad, hard surface is good, but you know, if you've got hard surfaces, they really need to be cleaned regularly 
or at least cleaned very, very thoroughly occasionally. That's what I found was that if I just thoroughly cleaned like you would in a lead lead um, lead remediation mm-hmm. uh, level of getting the house that clean, I didn't have to then clean nearly that much, but and it lasted a long time. But until I did that, um, I couldn't I couldn't come close to controlling my particle counts. And that leads. Um, but, but the, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, that leads into another question that I had a text on, and then, so we talked about carpet versus hard. What about uh, replacement of carpet? The question is, how often should carpets be replaced to reduce particulate? Any thoughts on that? Um, boy, every time you change owners, I sure wouldn't want the previous yeah. owner's crap um, to be yeah. in my air, so that would be an absolute minimum. Uh, um but at the same time, it just it, a lot depends on the location because you track you have all kinds of tracked in stuff. Um, so so it really would be a hard call to make depending on so many factors about the carpet. But um, uh, I've just always avoided carpet. Period. Um, and you know, lots of times it's very hard to clean carpet effectively, as, as you know. Uh, so those are those are level questions that we haven't really examined. I got another quick text, and it, it's something that I'm interested in as well. You deal with HRV, ERV systems, and and they may be helpful. Uh, and you mentioned in in the earlier talk about having a distributed um, ventilation system. What about filtration on ventilation systems? Is there any recommendation for the level of MERV filter that would you would recommend on um, HRV, ERV system? We're I mean, there's there are recommendations on the effectiveness of different MERV ratings for addressing different micron sizes. You see that in EPA's website and LBNL's um, IAQ website. Uh, we are doing testing of different filters, and we're tending to use a MERV 13 4-inch pleated uh, filter. What we primarily have found out in, in initial um, exploration is that one-inch high mirror filters um, appear to work well at really knocking the, the numbers down um, if you use the air handler long enough. In most houses, we, don't see a, we haven't seen a significant impact, but we haven't analyzed the data real closely. This is more from eyeballing the data. We haven't seen that houses that have one-inch um, high mirror filters are significantly better than those that have no filters. Hmm if they're only running the air handler on auto. But as soon as you change it from auto to on and run it significantly longer, we see a huge impact. But what we were curious about is what's the energy liability and what's going on with external static pressure. And then looking at that, we haven't found any case, and this is southern, southwestern Pennsylvania housing stock and our typical duct systems, which are sheet metal duct systems, We've not found any house where a one-inch Heimer filter should be used on a continual basis because of both the energy costs of doing so as well as the external static. Hmm. Um, we've seen cases where we could switch to a four-inch and it's significantly better, but it's still not necessarily great. We, we, we've, the highest we saw was 1,500 watts continuous. 1,500 watts is 36 kilowatt hours a day. That's, you know, over 100 bucks a month. Um, wow. We were talking about very high fan energy use. Um, and that's that's not just because of the one-inch filter. That's because of the way the duct system's set up. So even if you put a crappy filter in that's, you know, $2 filter, you're still, if you ran the air handler continuously, you wouldn't get filtration, <laughs> but you could get a high energy bill. So the issue is the energy use of air handlers. It's one thing if you're just using it in auto mode and it only comes on for two hours a day, three hours, whatever. But if you were to use your air handler for your filtration system, you absolutely need to do stuff to drop the bottom out of that energy use. And we've done, we're just beginning to do, we've done a couple. We've gotten one down to 110 watts. And that house, if they keep the windows closed, uh, with that house, they can have uh, particle counts that are better than we thought possible with a MERV 11 or 13 filter um, using the air handler continuously. 
but as soon as you open the windows, or if you don't address cooking emissions, you end up with high counts. But the, the emissions drop much, much faster if you have that continual um, air cleaning. So the key thing that I know we're running close on time, the key thing we've found is that when you've got good outside air quality, and the neat thing about our uh, region is we see within a three- to four-week period, sometimes where the air quality is pretty good outside, and on average it tends to be in the poor range, and there's periods when it's very poor. And we see a direct relationship to indoor counts that a person's not going to see if they're only looking at what, what are the peaks, where are the spikes. Mm-hmm. So what we're really curious about is what's the baseline? What's what's the amount that you're experiencing 24-7 when you're living in a house, when you're sleeping in your house and you're there for 10 hours, ideally? What are you breathing in your bedroom? And how can we really lower the exposure so based on the meters we've got, you're in the, the good to excellent zone, not the fair zone? And we've got a 10-to-1 difference between our best and our worst houses uh, from the standpoint of indoor particles. Hmm. Um, and we typically see indoor being better than outside, but when outside is good, inside is good. I mean, except for those weird, you know, those short spikes. And those spikes go way much faster when the outdoor is good because you get the dilution. Hmm. So absolutely, when out, the best solution for indoor air quality is to have good outso- outdoor air quality. And what, but every house needs, I mean, my takeaway is every house needs a way to clean the air and whether that be something portable or something that's um, central, and it needs to be done in such a way that is uh, uh, affordable to use, which most air handlers, as they exist, are not. So that gets that gets into the question I know you wanted to get to before we ended on the intersection of energy efficiency and uh, perfect. Um, Why don't we go ahead and go ahead. You know, let you wrap it up on that? You were doing such a great job. I didn't want to inter- inter- uh, interrupt. Okay, so the key thing is, in energy efficiency, we've been very focused within building performance, home performance, whole house, weatherization assistance program, on combustion safety, on moisture sources, and not causing backdrafting and spillage, um, and not doing those kinds of things. But for the most part, we've not been looking at the issue of particles. Um, They haven't been measured. They haven't been looked at. We haven't had diagnostic equipment to do that. With effective filtration, we could really give houses a vehicle that they could drastically improve, uh, lower uh, the particle counts from either indoor or outdoor sources, doesn't matter where it comes from, as long as they've got some way to filter the air. And the key is we need, when we're installing new heating equipment or when we're modifying heating equipment, we need to have... um, systems installed in such a way that you've got an efficient air handler, so the ideally ECM, um, which can move the air at a continuous rate at a far slower rate. Um, The settings need to be right. Occupants need to be educated. There needs to be um, room and the airflow appropriate for for a four or five inch filter. Ideally, you're not talking about the typical construction where you've got the filter slammed up against the the furnace Mm -hmm. doing a U-turn, but instead you put the filter in the return drop. I'm talking about typical basement uh, forced air systems. Right, Um, right. But lots of of energy efficiency programs are replacing systems. Lots of times we're putting in better, you know, central AC systems. So we've got all these opportunities at that point to, without a huge increase in cost, to, to put in systems that provide for much better filtration, to make sure the settings are right on the thermostat, to give people information. And we absolutely need to somehow tie that into monitoring and education so that people replace the filters. Because if they don't replace the filters, you're, you could have serious problems. Um, though with a four-inch filter, it's going to move more air than a one-inch clogged filter. Hmm. But one-inch filters just seem like a really bad deal based on my totally unbiased uh, observations. From what you're seeing to this point. Well, Linda, this is 
this has been a lot of fun, and, and we really didn't get a chance to dig down as deep as I would like, and I've got a list of questions remaining here. I'm, I'm hoping we can get you back, um, especially after you've, you've had a chance to dig down a little deeper into some of this information. But uh, what you've uh, told us so far has been fascinating. That's been a lot of fun. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, thank you for joining us, Linda Wigington. And it was it, it was a lot of fun, and I, I hope we can do it again. Um, you know, maybe like six months from now, you think you'll have a, a little more uh, detail on I some of the... I will be analyzing the house characterization data. Can't wait to dig into that. That would be great. And uh, I look forward to talking to you offline as well. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thank you to Linda Wigington. Fascinating show today, Cliff. I really enjoyed that. To my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Uh, At the controls, John, you got to have faith. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. Um, Thanks all. We'll see you uh, one week from today when we're back with the next episode of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 